complete with Monday Morning Preacher, ministryofpreachingtoday.com. Uh, part of Christianity Today, where we take one facet of preaching and try to encourage each other as preachers, so we're not so alone in this wonderful calling and craft that God has given us. And today I have a special guest. He's a special guest to me because he's, he's one of my favorite authors over the last 10 years, a guy named Steve Garber. And uh, you preachers may not have heard of him, but uh, he writes a lot on what it means to have a vocation in Christ. And he is a professor of marketplace theology at Regent College in Vancouver. Uh, he grew up out west in Colorado and California, and he's written a book called Visions of Vocation and a, a new book called The Seamless Life. Um, so, Steve, it is great to have you as our guest today. Thanks for joining us. It's very good to be with you, Matt. Thank you for the, the uh, grace of this invitation. Yeah. Well, Steve, I just I have appreciated your writing. I've been really moved by your writing. And Visions of Vocation is just it was a really formative book in my life and uh, shaping my recalling into pastoral ministry. So thanks for your writing. Well, I'm very glad to meet you finally, Matt. Yeah. So, Steve, you know, one of your lifelong passions, uh, it just comes through very clearly in your writing, is discovering and pursuing our God-given vocation. And I wanted to have you on because it, I think it's a topic that is vastly under-preached from our pulpits in America. And um, I think it's a key component of, of discipleship. So let's start with this. What is, when you say vocation, what, what does that mean to you? And why does it, what does that mean and why does that matter? It's a good question, Matt. Um, vocation, as I read it, is a very big word. It's a very complex word because it has to cover the whole of life. Uh, it actually is a word that goes back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the very beginning of the beginning. Um, I think what vocation is always about for everyone everywhere is addressing three questions. Who am I? Why am I? And what do I do with my life? And those questions are written into the very first words we have in Scripture. Who am I and why am I and what am I to do with my life? So in some ways, it's hard to really know who we are as human beings, as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, without actually addressing those questions, which are all questions born of the idea of vocation. To say it in the most simple terms, vocation is a, is a word by its own history as a word born of the same root we get the word vocal from, vocal cords. Uh, it's a Latin root, like many good words are, and it's the assumption that someone has said something and we can hear. Uh, and vocation, of course, in the Christian tradition is this built on this deep commitment we have that God has spoken and that we have the ability, by God's great grace, to hear what he has said. Uh, so in the most general terms, vocation is that. Um, you asked a little bit more. Let me press into it a little, a little bit more. But Yes. You know, one of the great preachers of ever in history is, was John Stott, Uncle John, as he was known affectionately by people all over the world. And uh, he, with Billy Graham, uh, convened the Lausanne Congress in the 1970s. And a few years after that happened in Switzerland, um, Stott gave lectures at Oxford at Wycliffe Hall there. And he gave five lectures, which IVP put into a book called Christian Mission in the Modern World. Hmm. I could talk about it extensively, but I'll just say this simply. He takes up in typical John Stott way, the best of biblical theological, you know, ex exposition of what a, the word mission means in the very first chapter. It's 20 pages of historical, biblical, theological exploring of what the mission of Christ was in history. Why did Christ come into the world, essentially? 
And just to cut to the chase here, he comes to a place in the chapter where he says there are implications of this, practical implications, he says. And the first is we must rethink what the church teaches about vocation, because we've mistaught this idea uh, throughout our history. We've created a hierarchy, and we all know the hierarchy, and it's a global hierarchy, the church mm. world of those who are most serious about faith and you know, following Christ in the world are overseas missionaries, a little bit less serious are pastors, a little bit less serious are nurses and kindergarten teachers, and a little bit less serious, less serious, less serious. And finally, the least serious of all are politicians, he says. <laughs> and Stott argues that if we get the mission of Christ right, looking at its biblical theological basis, we will have to first of all rethink what we teach about vocation because we've taught the wrong thing to the church in the world. That's why. Yeah. Wow, that's you know, um, Steve. I was just thinking about John Stott yesterday, about how he would. I was in a involved in a complex situation with a friend who's not a believer, and I started thinking, what would John Stott say about this? Just, uh, just so clear and um, so deeply radical. You know, getting to the roots of things. Let me ask you this, Steve. So I know I, from your writings, you consult and you mentor a lot of creative Christian leaders in business, politics, the arts, entrepreneurship. And maybe you haven't asked them this question directly. You may not talk about preaching with them, but what do you sense they are longing for from their church, their pastors, their preachers? Yeah. Again, it'd be a good conversation for a long walk, Matt. Yeah. I'd say this to you. Um, I think that, you know, people like that are like everybody else in the world. We're ordinary people, all of us, at the end of the day. Um, I think that what they, you know, who are people that you open up your heart to, Matt? People, I'm guessing, because you're like me, even though we don't know each other very well, but you're, I'm guessing people who, who take you as a human being seriously. Hmm. Who listen to you as a human being, as Matt Woodley. You have a sense that they're not trying to be a psychiatrist in your life, but in some ways, as a friend, they listen to you, they watch you, they pay attention to you. People I talk to are like that too. I think in one conversation a few years ago with a man who called me out of the blue one day and I was actually writing the Visions of Vocation book for several weeks one summer and he said, I heard I could talk to you about my work. I said, well, how about when I get back from this? And so we got together and he had retired from a Wall Street CEO position, had moved to the, you know, the beautiful farm country west of Washington, D.C., out in Virginia. And, and we got together at a little cafe for lunch one day and he said to me, um, you know, I've been a faithful member of the church for a long time, and I've tried to be there regularly whenever I could be there to be part of the church's life. I have contributed to the church's life in many ways as I've been able to. I've never in my life ever heard a sermon where I thought the preacher thought about somebody like me when he prepared his sermon. Wow. Now, he was, you know, a man probably in his early 70s, gifted, serious, industrialist, work all over the world, not a fool in anybody's sense of the word at all, of course. Uh, I'd ask you for stupid things from a pastor. You know, would you do some surprise exegesis this week on Habakkuk and tell me what I should do in Germany with my company this week? It wasn't what he was asking for. He was yeah. just saying, you know, I don't, I think he, he, he said, he put it like this. He sees me in church on Sunday morning. I think he thinks I live here. I don't really. Huh. I go to work on Monday morning and the push and shove of my life is a complexity he doesn't seem to ever think about and he prepares his sermons. Um, I just wish someday, somehow, I'd have some, somebody preach to me as if somebody, as, I, as if I'm somebody who works in the world. Yeah. Wow. 
that you that story out and you could pest it into all kinds of particular vocations. But I think that's the longing. Mm. Steve, that just as you're sharing that story, it's just like, oh, that's just uh, a little bit like a dagger in the heart of a preacher because it's like I don't think we want to do that, you know. But I think we do a lot of times, and we we do not take people seriously in their vocational lives, you know. So that's just that's a really stirring story. Um, it's actually inspiring. It's not depressing or, but also inspiring. So thanks for sharing that story. <clears throat> It is for that. I want it to be, of course, because it's a true story of a, of a human being just like the rest of us are. Yeah. You know, maybe it gets back to what you're trying to get at in your latest book, which is called The Seamless Life. What, what do you mean by a seamless life? What, what does that mean? And what is that, you know, maybe what is that? First, what does that mean? And then maybe if there's any kind of implications for us preachers in our preaching. Well, seamless you know, you could draw on different roots to it, but there's a very good word in the Hebrew scriptures, tamim, um, which is integrity, your completeness. Uh, I know when I did my own Hebrew study many, 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 many years ago, I was taken by that word as a word which surprised me because it was a word which said about, it was speaking to, to the whole of one's life, all of who we are, uh, I think seamlessness or coherence is a word I would also use is addressing all of who we are as human beings. Uh, now it is the subtitle of the book, we, a tapestry of love and learning worship and work. And those four words capture a lot of who we are. We could use other words too about political responsibility and sexual identity and, and you know, economic, you know, uh, commitments and, we can talk about many things in life. Uh, but worship, work, love, learning captures a lot of who we are. St. Benedict, you know, 1,500 years ago, as Rome was dissolving and falling apart as a civilization, he gathered some faithful followers to come with him to create a community where at the very heart of the community's vision was a life of ora e labora. In Latin, it is to worship and to pray and to work together. And I think that what we long for is a way to theologically, biblically, in the heart of our faith, make sense of, of all of ourselves, of all of who we are, of both our, our praying and our working. I remember speaking at a men's retreat some years ago for a weekend, a Friday night through a Sunday. And, and I knew some of the people, but not most of them. And Sunday morning after the last presentation, uh, I four guys walked up to me and they said, we have a friend we brought, he's not part of our church, but we want him to, to hear you. So I said, fine. And I said, he has a question for you. What's he wants to say to you? And I said, okay. And so he was a Brit, very obviously. This was in America. Yeah. He was a Brit. And he was said, I've lived in New York City for most of my life now, my adult life. And I've had a business. My business has been in the place where technology and, and business touch each other, which, of course, is a lot of the world we live in today. He said, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I decided to be serious about my faith. And, uh, but he said, you know, early on in my adult seriousness, I began to realize that the church saw me as a second-class citizen. Mm. I've never, never been willing to actually go with a full, you know, full commitment and do something, quote, religious with my life. I was just in business. So I could contribute to the church's in ministry financially, but I wasn't really that serious because I was still in business. Was how so I thought that for 25 years of my life. So I'm 50 years old now. He said to me, you know, this weekend, I think that a wound in my heart has been healed. Wow. Um, well, you've given me a way to think about 
all of who I am and all of what I've done, all of what I want to do in light of what I believe to be true about God and the world. Yeah. And those words that's, have stuck in my heart, Matt. A wound in my heart has been healed. Yeah, that's really powerful. Steve, I know you, um, you're around a lot of preachers. You train a lot of preachers. I would imagine you've preached a lot. I know you've given a lot of lectures. I know you've talked in churches and church settings and uh, not just the academic world. What, what advice would you give to preachers? Like, what can we do once our heart is stirred? Like, I really, I want to speak into the life of my, my business leaders, my, my artists, my, um, my craftsmen, my medical professionals, my garbage men, my, you know, whatever. What, is there any practical advice that you would give to like, yeah. how do we do that as preachers? Again, it's a wonderful question, Matt. If I can, and I will draw upon Uncle John Stott again here. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say if you look at his career from, you know, his going off to the rugby school, you know, as a little boy, his father wanted to be a British diplomat, and he comes to faith in his mid-adolescent years and goes to Cambridge. His father was not at all supportive of him doing biblical theological studies at Cambridge, but he did, and it's a break, you know, and a hurt in his own life that that happened. And, um he goes off in his late 20s to be a curate at All Souls Church in the center of the city of London. And, and surprise of all surprises, the rector of the church dies about a year later. Mm. And John Stott is made, you know, in his 30, the rector of this major city church in the middle of London, next to the BBC headquarters. And we all know his story, at least an outline, for the next 25, 30 years he pastored there and began to be a trusted pastor of the people and teacher of the word of God all over the world. If you look at his career in those first some years of his life, uh, he was very focused upon the Bible as Bible. Mm. Uh, you know, his commentaries beginning to do in his 30s were like that. It was, you know, the text says this. It took him a while, I think, in some ways, this begin to travel and to pastor to the whole world to begin to realize that the questions he'd been taught to ask as a young cleric were not the questions people in the world had about the text of Scripture. Hmm. He began to wrestle with that. And finally, I'm just going to sum this up pretty quickly. He wrote a book called Between Two Worlds. And of course, if you've been a preacher, you probably have read the book along the way. Yes. Between Two Worlds. And the argument was, of course, that it was to be, preaching was always the task of listening to both the authoritative ancient text of Scripture, but also immersing yourself in the complexities of the contemporary questions of your world. And so one of the disciplines that Stott maintained was to gather people from his church regularly around him, sitting in a circle, to talk through his sermon series, to talk through what was happening in the city of London and in the world, to make sure that in some ways his own preaching was reflective of that dynamic tension between uh, these two worlds of the ancient authoritative text of Scripture, but also the complexity of contemporary questions in the world. Um, I think that that's what is required of us, actually. Some of my good friends are part of the Made to Flourish Network in America, headquartered in Kansas City and led by Tom Nelson and Matt Reston. And I know one of the arguments they would make is that pastorally, it's awfully important for pastors to visit people in their work, to see what they do, to listen to the questions which are theirs, and to sit down and to say, well, you know, when this happens, and then tell me more about that, and to watch. And so in some ways, as they're resting with the text week by week, they're doing so in the light of the weight and challenge and you know, hope of people whose lives are taken up principally in the work of their lives. Yeah, that, suggestion. Yeah, that's really good. I know that that little um, 
practice of just asking people about their work. What's it like? What are your temptations? What are your challenges? What are your joys? What gives you joy at your work? And then actually, if you can, visiting them at their work, you know, showing up, seeing their office, meeting their coworkers. Um, that has just really helped my preaching a lot. So, so thanks, Steve. Um, so this is a little different, a little different track, but so in your book, Visions of Vocation, I'm going to quote you. You say, uh, and here's a quote from you, knowing what we know, what am I going to do? And then you say this, the challenge of the information age makes it seem impossible to imagine that we can do anything other than become numb. We know too much. That, that really challenged me. So there's numbness and information overload. And I know you didn't write the book for preachers, but do you have any advice for preachers about how we talk to people who are numb and overloaded with information already? Yeah. Well, I do because you preachers are people too, of course, and they pastor people, of course. That's the point. Um, I think like everything else in life, that it's a challenge to us or perplexity for us. We probably have to have some work in naming the problem. Mm. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, very, some ways, very perplexing and complex, and, but also maybe more obvious problem. You know, how do we address the matter of sexual, sexuality in the church today? Um, we, and so we have to talk about it, you know, to name it, you know, and without, you know, somehow how do we walk the in but not of the world, you know, line of being pastorally, you know, helpful to our people and thinking through who are we as human beings, male and female, he created them. How do we work that out in the 21st century with all of the, you know, hope and heartache that is the 21st century experience. Um, part of it is naming the question, naming the issue, naming the problem that, that, it, that exists for us. I think on this one, it's probably worth naming it, you know, and to talking about it, maybe reading about it. I would give probably three or four books for a pastor to read, which would in some ways begin to give analytical tools to understand our moment in terms of this particular issue. I probably would begin with Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death in the 1980s. I might go into a book in the 1990s uh, called Mediated. Uh, might come into a recent book by Nicholas Carr called The Shallows. Um, I might come into Sherry Turkle's book more recently called Alone Together. Mm. I really want to walk through with people. Maybe I have them watch, you, watch the YouTube video of U2, of U2 the band, Irish band U2, and their song simply titled Numb. And think about it. Know, how would we exegete this song? What are they saying in this song, which is, you know, for me, the artists always get there first. So before the mm -hmm. sociologists of knowledge begin to write about this within the university, the artists have already, already identified this. So we've got to be paying attention to what you two are saying to us about living in a numbing moment of history. Um, and then I think, you know, if that's identifying the problem, I think it's worth identifying and maybe thinking through how does, how does the church respond to this, of course? And for me, the way we begin here is to begin at the beginning and to realize that the very first temptation for human beings ever in history was a temptation, but what are you going to do with what you know? Mm. That's Genesis chapter 2, isn't it? Chapter 3. Right. It, ironically, surprisingly named tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm. What I've called an epistemological temptation with a moral heart. What are you going to do with what you know? And realize that that actually is the first question. It's the first temptation. It's the most perennial temptation for human beings. And all day long, all of us are in the most superficial ways, 
and the most perplexing compounded ways are responding to that question. All day long we are. Hmm. I would yeah. say, think about, you know, I mean, just to say something more simple here, but what's the very end of the Sermon on the Mount? It's Jesus saying, what are you going to do with what you know? Wow. There are two responses here, won't there be? So those of you who build your houses on a rock would be this, on sand would be this. What's the difference? What you did with what you knew. Some of you put it into practice and some of you won't, actually. Wow. What is the most, probably most familiar parable of Jesus? The Good Samaritan. What's it about? You know, somebody... The expert in the law, gotten all A's in law his whole life. And in Walker Percy's terms, he had gotten all A's with was flunking in his life. Yeah. And he didn't know what to do with what he knew. He didn't know what a neighbor actually was. So he just says, well, I won't play this academic game with you, debating with you who a neighbor is. I'll yeah. tell you the story, though. And I'm going to ask you a question. What are you going to do with what you know? Who was the neighbor, actually? Do mm. you see the point? So I would say it isn't an abstract, you know, idea in the Bible. Actually, it's spread through Scripture from beginning to end. And it ought to be so in the life of the church, in the life of God's people. Yeah, that's really powerful. So, Steve, I know you've been, uh, you are, uh, you've lived a mentoring life. You've mentored a lot of people through your writing. You've mentored a lot of people face to face. Now you're still mentoring a lot of people over the phone and Zoom. Is there any wisdom that you would give to us as we uh, close out this podcast? Yeah. Some years ago, one of the biggest foundations in America, the Lilly Endowment uh, in Indianapolis, um, born of hope and the heartache in the, in the pharmaceutical corporation world, um, but they have made lots and lots and lots of money in the 20th century, 21st century. And, uh, but about a third of the, all the resources they give actually goes to trying to do what they can to see that the church in America is healthy. It's a surprising choice they've made as a foundation. Um, but 15 years ago, they created a remarkably generous and visionary grant called Programs in the Theological Exploration of Vocation. And they gave $2 million grants to 90 universities and colleges across America. Notre Dame got $2 million, but so did Calvin College, and so did Baylor University, and so did Geneva College, and so did Seattle Pacific University, and so did, you know, so did, so did, so did, really. 90 schools of different ecclesial backgrounds, Methodists and you know, Baptists and Calvinists and Catholics and Mennonites and the whole shebang got access to this money. I got called in by the head of the grant at a certain point saying, we see your name and how the money is being used. Uh, do you have any ideas about this grant? And I said, well, I probably have one big idea. And I said, it, it actually is, is it, it's a debt I would have to pay to Leslie Newbigin, um, who wrote in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, the very last chapter, which when I first read it, actually, I thought, no, you cannot finish this book here. I would not, do not want to have you say this out loud to me, because the last mm. chapter was the congregation as the hermeneutic of the gospel. Mm. It seemed to me in my 30s as the mouse that roared. I thought, no, after all of this, you're going to finish with this one? This is way too small. But some ten, probably 10 years later, when the Lillian Dalmate called me, I said, I would give you Leslie Newbigin back. I would say, I'm sure he was right, and I was just too young to know. Um, I do think that's true, Matt. The congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. And so your question about, you know, what could be done in the church, and what is the pastoral vocation in here, I would say, in some ways, without having an inflated view of who we are in the church, but it's also in some ways wanting to have an honest and truthful view that I think in God's own 
ways in history, he has appointed the church to be the hermeneutic of the gospel, to be what we, how we see and hear the gospel in the world. And so it matters, I think, very, very much. I have long used this language as the credo of my own sense of calling, that vocation is integral, not incidental to the missio dei. Mm. It's integral, not incidental to the mission of God in the world. And I would say watching the church all over the world as I get a chance to do, I would say that most of the time, all over the world, the church teaches the fact that vocation is incidental to the mission. Mm. Uh, we don't pray that way. We don't preach that way typically. Uh, you know, we don't. Who gets prayed for in most churches? Not the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers. Not the kindergarten teachers and the nurses and the lawyers and the farmers. That people who are doing, quote, religious things, which is why the man said to me at this retreat years ago, I think a wound in my heart has been healed. Mm. I thought it was outside of God's work in the world for most of my life because that's what the church has been t- telling me. You know, give your money, be generous, you know, mm. come and sing songs on Sunday and pray for those who are doing God's work. But we're not going to pray for you because you, you're just in business after all. Um, mm. I think we can do a lot better. I think God needs us. To, I think the world needs us to do better. And I think, in fact, yeah. our theology, at its truest, Matt, teaches us to do better. Yes. To live a seamless life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Worship, work, love, and learning all together. Yeah. Steve, thanks so much. This, this always stirs me talking about this topic because I think when we preach, it just, it's just a way of lo- loving our people. Uh, it's part of it is just loving them. Um, and, and their world is, is gospel ground. So I, I really appreciate your writing on vocation, your writing on the seamless life. Thanks for being with us today, Steve. It's a gift to be with you, Matt. Thank you. God bless you. Yeah. I'm talking to Dr. Stephen Garber, author of Visions of Vocation and the Seamless Life. Thanks for joining us on Monday Morning Preacher. Hope you can join us for our next episode.